Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. You know this advice that you focus on your strengths? Lots of people are hearing it. It sounds really good. And in fact, in some ways, it probably is really solid advice for advancing your strengths or advancing your career. After all, using your strengths, being truly exceptional at a few things, and finding a role where your strengths are essential kind of leads to a rewarding career. But should we stop there? Is that enough, just accentuating the strengths? And how do we begin to think about the balance of developing our capability, particularly in areas where we're not so strong, versus just emphasizing our strengths? So with me today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, and authority on leadership. And he began his career at the Center for Creative Leadership and then founded Kaiser Leadership Solutions in 2013 with the purpose of setting a new standard in assessment and development And he's done that by offering a very interesting set of innovative tools that I happen to be a particular fan of. He's also published lots of articles, both in the scientific literature and in the international business press. And he's published five books. Um, The Versatile Leader was the first of one of many. The Perils of Accentuating the Positive and The Fear Your Strengths was the most recent one. And Rob's thought leadership is scientific, but it's also grounded in his experience as an executive coach and an evaluator of candidates for executive jobs. He's a strategic advisor to CEOs and to HR leaders. And I will say that while Rob takes his work very seriously, he doesn't take himself very seriously. As you're going to see, he has a fun um, challenging of unconventional of conventional wisdom style and kind of being straightforward in his thinking. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Juan. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise. We have such good conversations, so I'm looking forward to this one. All right. So let's start with this whole thing about the preference for the positives. There, it, it has just been sweeping the leadership, leadership development area, and I can't tell you how many clients I've walked into speaking to the talent and development people where they say, we're now focusing on the positives. That's our mission as development professionals. So why has this caught on? And then I'm going to ask you what's right about this approach. So why do you think it's caught on? Well, let me flip that around, actually, and start with what's right. Because it, it is true, uh, the field of human development has been obsessed with illness and pathology and fixing what makes life unbearable since the beginning. And the founding of psychology was Sigmund Freud treating neurotics <laughs> in Victorian England. But yeah. all along, there has been this movement and voice that, that there's more to it. And so there is a real need to rebalance, since what makes life worth living is not just the absence of the things that make it unbearable. And it's true, right? Your strengths are what will make you the best you can be, Wanda. Each of us are born with a genetic temperament, and that affects and shapes our personalities and thinking styles, predisposes us towards certain skills and activities. They just come more naturally. And that's helpful for Anybody who wants to align their career with their interests, you find roles that play to your aptitude talents, and a good fit is just more energizing and gives you a chance to shine. 
this is really important earlier in your career. Best to start yeah. with something you're good at, get you motivated, excited, so you can distinguish yourself. Passion and performance go hand in yeah. hand. Yeah. As I talk with people, as I'm coaching people, I've just been doing it all day today, and we're talking about motivating and inspiring people to do more and believe in themselves and a whole, all that kind of stuff, you know, winning over a junior staff that they really want to follow you, all that thing. Uh, today, I was struck by how many times I kept saying, you got to focus on the positive. you got to see what's positive in it. you got to look at the positive because we know that the positive is motivating, it's, there's something in that for sure, but somehow I think it can't stop there. So why do you think this positive movement has caught on, your view? Well, you know, when it first emerged about the turn of the century, you got to think about the context, right? We were just coming through the dot-com bust. Adam Greenspan had just talked about the irrational exuberance. We had a go, go, goo, goo, rosily optimistic outlook on things. So I think the tenor of the times really set it up. But then there's also a couple of other major shifts that were affecting organizations. The big one being the looming retirement of the boomer generation. Just wasn't enough good talent to go around, and the situation's gotten even more serious. And that changed the labor economy from a buyer's market to a seller's market, which in turn accelerated the humanistic push to be more employee-centered, so now what's all the rage? Employee engagement. Now it's becoming employee experience. We know all the stories of the lavish perks employers are offering as a way to hire and attract as well as retain top talent. And, you know, there's an even deeper thing, though, I think that this just touches on and activates. Fundamentally, way down deep, it's just difficult to give critical, constructive feedback about performance problems. Mm. Yeah. You know, to that point, though, Wanda, let, let, me, let me say this. There's a recent uh, survey Jack Sanger and, uh, Zanger and Larry Folkman had published that, that found when it, when it comes to giving feedback, people and managers included prefer to give positive feedback much more than corrective feedback. They were actually able to quantify that difference. It found that we're, we prefer the positive feed, to give positive feedback 20 times more than corrected feedback. Right. But they also found something else really intriguing. When it comes to receiving feedback, the respondents felt that the corrective feedback was more helpful to their performance and their career. Sure, they like to get the positive reinforcement for what's going well, but they felt that the really useful stuff was the critical feedback by a factor of three to one, fully 72% of the people in that survey thought their performance would improve if their managers could provide more corrective feedback. So a real paradox, right? We prefer to give positive feedback, but we believe it's the corrective feedback that's going to be most beneficial for us. Yeah. Yeah. But that corrective feedback needs to be delivered in the context of an overall positive environment, meaning... If I believe you as a manager really trying to do the best for me and really care about me and trying to develop me, then in that context, the corrective feedback is hugely helpful. But without that context, corrective feedback just feels like you're trying to slam me. Absolutely. We have to feel comfortable and safe 
frankly. We have to have a strong relational foundation. Otherwise, you feel a little threatened by the stuff. It's coming from left field, and we haven't established that common ground that really cements the relational foundation it takes to have tough conversations in a constructive way. Yeah, yeah. All right, so this is interesting. I want to talk for a minute about millennials. So there's a lot of mythology, and I think more mythology than there is actually real understanding. And just for the record, I'm also going to think say that I don't know that millennials are dramatically different than the rest of us. There's a lot of them, so they will probably shift the dynamics in the workplace. But all right, we could debate that. But one of the mythologies about millennials is that they only want to hear the positives. You know, the we've given them a trophy for their entire life, and therefore that's all they want. Now... How does that sit in this whole strength-based approach? Does that resonate with you or not? Is that what you're seeing? Well, you know, mythology or not, there are those beliefs out there. So I think it's it's probably part of it, but there's a much bigger story here. I was recently working with an executive team, a very successful big global company, and one of the more vocal, influential members of that team was referring to a recent employee survey showing one of the big action items was employees didn't feel like they were getting enough feedback. And this senior person made a real staunch case that, well, they just want positive feedback. They don't want the negative feedback. And it really shaped the opinions on that executive committee in a lot of ways. He singled out millennials in particular, but wanted the data don't support that broad of a generalization. And I want to go back to that uh, Zanger and Folkman survey I talked about, they sliced that set of data by generation. Sure enough, each generation showed the preference for corrective feedback. They thought that would be more helpful. Now, the effect was less pronounced for the millennials. They wanted a little less feedback than boomers and Xers, both positive and negative. And they also didn't feel as comfortable giving feedback both positive and negative. But nonetheless, the overall trend showed that even the millennials felt the corrective feedback was more helpful to their performance and their careers. So some of this mythology and these overgeneralizations are just overblown. Okay. Well, that is my experience because when I talk to millennials or I coach millennials or I work with them in a classroom, what they tell me is that they actually really want – the constructive feedback, that that's what they're looking for, but they want it in a context that I know you're trying to help me, not in a you're trying to find every flaw that I have, and they don't want just the corrective, could you also find something that I'm doing right? So that sense of balance for them seems to be more important. I think I also remember the Pew Foundation having research that says, by the way, Gen X and boomers want the same thing, we just got comfortable not getting it. (laughs) <laughs> well, there, there may be some truth to that. Now, you, you've raised a millennial. I'm raising a millennial, and it went for the next generation. It seems to me that the biggest difference is one of maturity and age and less generational, per se. But, you know, back to human nature and what we all want and crave and just how we work. There's There's research from... Uh, study of relationships. There's research in organizations and, and performance and teamwork that show, you know, bad is stronger than good. And it takes a ratio of, you know, in John Gottman's research in his love lab up in Seattle, healthy marriages were characterized by five positive interactions to every one negative interaction. 
And, and I think there's a deep principle there that we need plenty of affirmation and support in order to be able to have the fortitude, resilience, and openness to receive the negative stuff in a constructive way. Right. Okay. All right. So we've talked about how good it feels and how important the positive is and why that sort of caught on. We've talked about the fact that most people, especially who are really looking to build a career and want to advance, find that the corrective feedback is more useful, provided it's given in the right context. So, okay, we get that. We have to have some sense of balance. So let's turn to the opposite. Um, Why should we look at our weaknesses? Why not just give feedback on the positives and the small corrective things you can do to be better at those positives? Should we really be looking at the things we don't do well at all? (laughs) Well, the older I get, the the more impressed I am that there are a lot of ways to do something poorly and very few ways to do it right. (laughs) But, But let me be clear. I mean, first off, Getting stuck in a rut, dwelling on your weaknesses, is not going to move you forward. But it's also clear that most of us believe that that corrective feedback is more helpful. And for good reason. Let's let's be blunt. Weaknesses matter. They will limit both your current performance and your future prospects. I, I think it's useful to distinguish different types of, quote, weaknesses, if you will. In leadership, the arena you and I work in, Career derailment is well understood. It's been studied for coming on 40 years. And the conclusions are pretty universal in identifying a short list of fatal flaws, the kinds of things that are going to get in the way, disrupt relationships, distract organizations, and ultimately get you fired over time. And you can't just compensate for these by patching over them with strengths. Well, what are they? Five. First off, relationship problems. Second, struggle to build a team. Third, can't adapt to change. Fourth, can't think strategically. And of course, missing critical business objectives will get you in trouble too. Trouble in any one of these areas needs to be addressed or else it's a ticking time bomb. But there's another important issue too. And that's when strengths can become a weakness through overuse. And I think a lot of the strengths work and enthusiasm for a focus on strength misses this subtler dynamic. You know, the classic examples, a hard charger, somebody who really pushes to get things done, but sometimes rubs people the wrong way and comes across as abrasive. Or a deep technical expert who has a lot of functional know-how starts to look like tunnel vision and an inability to see across the enterprise and how to build that larger team across functions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I certainly see some of those where, you know, this overuse, even at the extent of like overuse of something that seems so positive, like exuberance. You know, overusing that after a while, it just, you know, people don't want to talk to you anymore. It's sort of, would you go away? I know what your story is going to be. Yeah, it could get a little overwhelming, all that positive enthusiasm and amped up emotion and passion. It can be a little tough to take sometimes. 
I'll tell you what, we could play a neat game one. Name me a strength, and I will name you an executive I know who overdoes it. <laughs> I often say that in the in the groups that I talk with. You know, I will do this exercise to get people in the room to identify the characteristics they think are that are unique among the leaders that they most admire in their own company. It's a lovely sort of way to say what is it these people are doing and get them prepared here feedback and discuss, you know, where they might want to make some improvements themselves. And for every, you know, we'll end up with five pages of items listed here. For every one of those, it can be overdone. And I'm going to take one that is like the hot topic at the moment. So communication, like communication is the solution to every single problem known to man. But you can over communicate. You can use that so much so that it becomes a weakness, well, the easy measure of that is our email inbox. <laughs> yeah, right. Although okay. I do like to re- remind executives that emailing is not necessarily communicating. <laughs> okay, well, there's that too, and there is the notion of what, kind of what effective communication is. But I think you're right. Any, partic- any strength um, has to be balanced a bit with its polar opposite, something I know mm-hmm. you believe very strongly. Well, you're singing my song here. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, balance is something. I mean, golly, the, the, the wisdom tradition since time immemorial have, have really preached some form of balance and the need to contain the opposing forces, if you will, or in managerial speak, to find those complementary competencies and make sure you're doing justice to both sides. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so can you know just to make sure that everybody's clear about this one, can you give us another example about someone who has some strengths and has really begun to overplay those and how that is translating to negative impact on the individual and on the performance of the group? Sure. You know, I've, I've got a really illustrative example here. It's a real vivid one in my memory from two years ago. So when I begin a coaching relationship with an executive, I I like to ask them a a two-part question. And it starts like this. And and, and why don't I kind of role-play it a little bit to give you a flavor how it goes. Okay. Very senior person, uh, very accomplished, big organization, a former college athlete, still very fit, a big imposing figure in many, many ways. I asked him, what one thing more than anything else do you think great leaders do? Hmm. He said, oh, that's easy. The best leaders bring a brutal whiff of clarity. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a big, booming voice, big figure, the whole thing. And I said, brutal clarity. What do you mean by that? And he says, well, you know, they're absolutely direct in every sense of the word. They're clear about what we're going to do. They're clear about what we're not going to do. And they let you know where you stand even if it's not very tall. I call it brutal clarity. Okay, got it. What's the opposite of brutal clarity? He says, well, that's that namby-pamby, go-along-to-get-along, try-to-please-everybody sort of leader. Well, that doesn't sound very good. He says, no, it's not. And I'll tell you what, Rob, that's the reason for a lot of the performance problems you see in the corporate landscape. Well, let's, let's try this again. I didn't mean to set up a straw argument where one thing's good and the other's obviously bad. I don't think anybody aspires to be a namby-pamby, go-along, get-along leader. No, I'm thinking more like yin and yang, 
where both are good. You know, you need night, you need day in the full lunar cycle. What's the yin to the yang of brutal clarity? And this really smart, successful senior person gave me a blank stare. You could see the wheels turn. So after a few moments of awkward silence, I, I said, well, of course it's important to be crystal clear. But I'm also thinking sometimes you might want to use a little tact and diplomacy to make sure people can hear the message instead of getting hung up in the way you deliver it. <laughs> he says, ah, tact. I've been given that feedback before. But I still believe in brutal clarity. <laughs> he had this attachment to being a tough guy. It's who he saw himself to be. But now, when we went and did the interviews and got some 360 feedback for him and all that sort of stuff, it came back that people experience him as a bit too forceful. It could be jarring at times, a little hard to take. Now, as we got into to work in this and in his development, the key factor that made all the difference to him was after a couple of conversations and poking around at his mindset and challenging him appropriately. Of course, that's after we'd established a good rapport and he knew I was on his side and trusted me to do the poking and prodding. He came back and he said, you know, Rob, this soft stuff is the hardest stuff of all and I can do hard things. So he kind of turned it over in his mind, Wanda, to the point where once he could see a version of himself flexing those soft skill muscles in a way that still fit comfortably with his sense of self, his image of himself, he was then able to start experimenting with some of these soft skill behaviors. But it wasn't until that point where he could see himself doing it in an authentic and genuine way and feel good about himself doing it until he allowed himself to actually practice those behaviors. That makes a ton of sense to me because I think this whole thing around the positives and the need to focus on the positives is because I get my own image of who I am and how I lead and what makes me great wrapped into, you know, the things that I do. And then what I really like is for people to reinforce that image of myself. And doing the polar opposite is not in my image of myself. So I don't like it, and I'm going to reject it. And by the way, I'm going to reject other people who do that. So that leads to the difficult, quote-unquote, difficult personality syndrome, because I don't enjoy working with people who do the polar opposite. So it strikes me that getting people to see, as you described, the yin and the yang, the strength that I bring, but understanding the value of the opposite um, yeah. and being able to incorporate that into their image of themselves yeah. is really at the heart of what makes a difference here. You know, you and I have both been at this development game with executives for a long time. And, and I firmly believe, and I, and I know you agree, that it takes the inner work of mindset change to support and allow the outer work of behavior change. And I do believe a lot of this originates in our mind. It's, it's, it's how we construct them. It's so interesting. Our natural language, you talked about polar opposites, the opposite behavior, as if somehow these two things can't coexist. 
I've, I've learned to, to watch my language over time and not feed into this polarization that seems so common to the way people function. Talk about compliments. It's not either or. It's both and and that sort of thing. But it's really hard to mature to the point where you have that level of subtlety and nuance, especially when it comes to your identity and who you see yourself being and acting. There's so much emotion confused with all of that stuff that it, it tends to create these exaggerated ideas where I can only see the good in what I'm good at. I can't see the excess of it. And when I look the other side, that complementary behavior, I can only see the extreme, grotesque, exaggerated form of it. Uh-huh. Very interesting. That was a very, so there were two points in that one that strike me as really appropriate, because I know I do often use the language of polar opposite uh, to exaggerate the two, but you're right. It's not that they're polar opposite, it's that they are actually complementary. They are the yin to the yang. I think that's a really, really, really useful. And I also like what you said, it's the ability to see the good in what I do. That's we can all do, that's easy. And not see the other um, the excess in the, in that good, and then also fail. We exaggerate the complementary side in its excess. It's like I see what's really good about mine, but I only see excess of somebody else. <laughs> we see that in in our data. I mean, we've got a forty thousand senior people assessed in the sort of way that people readily recognize strengths overused and neglecting that complementary behavior in other people. It's a very strong statistical effect, but they don't see it so much as themselves. Right, right. Yes, I often say to people on this strengths overused piece is that it feels natural. What I do feels natural, and the other side somehow doing it a different way somehow feels wrong. Like the incorrect way to do it. You did it right there. You did it right there. It's so great. Natural versus wrong. How about natural yeah. versus unnatural? <laughs> perfect. perfect. I think that's how people feel about it. All right, Rob, this is a perfect place to stop. Let me see if I can um, kind of make a summary here. We have been talking about the current mantra of accentuating the positives, and I think we both agree that the room for the positives is certainly very powerful. It is there. The positives are what's going to make you great at the end of the day, and they're what you're naturally drawn to. So there's a feel-good factor to it as well. But there are two kinds of weaknesses that we cannot afford to miss, um, regardless in this positive. And one is the sort of fatal flaws that are going to get us derailed. And we'll go back to the five that you mentioned, the relationship problems, the inability to build the right team, the not responding to change, not being strategic enough or missing big business objectives, all coming out of some very strong work at the Center for Creative Leadership and other places. That's one side of a flaw we can't afford to ignore. And we often use the word flaw in that one. But this last conversation, I think, is much more nuanced and much more important. And it's recognizing that for every strength I have, there is a complementary side. And we don't want to get excessive overusing in that strength. We want to be mindful of where the complementary side has power and strength and not polarize them, not make one right and one wrong and not just play to what feels, quote-unquote, natural to us. How'd I do, Rob? 
Sounds like the conversation we just had. I found myself nodding up and down. Perfect. <laughs> High five. <to> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So my guest today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is um, has founded Kaiser Leadership Solutions. You can find more about his work at KaiserLeadershipSolutions.com. And we're going to come right back. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more personally about some of these issues and dig a little bit deeper into what the research says about strength-based work. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, and authority on leadership and has developed um, a wonderful set of assessment and development tools that sets a new standard, I think, in the world of leadership development. And he can be found at KaiserLeadershipSolutions.com. We've been talking about the value of the positives, but we've also been talking about the fact that you can't ignore the development needs You can't ignore strengths ever used. You can't ignore fatal flaws. And by the way, most people find the constructive feedback done in a feed-forward manner is actually the most useful. So, Rob, I want to take a step back. Um, Why are you so passionate about this topic of strengths overused? (laughs) Well, um, two things, really. I mean, the first one is something you and I have in common, which is we're really passionate about the topic of leadership. It matters who's driving the bus. Uh, but the second reason is, is, is more personal. I first came across the strengths-based stuff oh, 20 years ago at a conference. And the speaker, a, a big proponent of, of the movement, bounded onto stage. Uh, the, the conference attendees 
largely HR professionals were really into it. Big, huge applause. And, and he started going off on this, this speech about how he wanted to start a revolution in development. Now, I was young at the time, and I thought revolution sounded great. <laughs> As he started talking about what was wrong with traditional approaches, with a focus on weaknesses and what's wrong, and the need to shift for what's right, I started perking up. I'm listening very carefully. See, I had just become a father. He had given birth to our first child, Claire, and she didn't come with an instruction manual. In truth, I was kind of anxious about how are we going to raise a strong, confident, capable, successful woman. And as he was talking about tapping into what's right and pulling out all the good stuff she was born with, I was taking notes and sitting straight up. And then the speaker got to a part where he told this audience he, he was deep into the neuroscience of the time. And the neuroscience had proven that people don't change much after about five or six. He referred to this technique called pruning, kind of a good housekeeping where your brain tidies up neurons you don't use. And the idea that if you use it, you lose it. Don't use it, you lose it. And the door sort of shuts on different ways of thinking and behaving. Well, I'd been keeping up with the neuroscience, too, and the news of the day wasn't pruning, use it or lose it. The news of the day was neuroplasticity, this idea that the, the mind can continue to reconfigure itself well into adulthood. They first found this with stroke patients, but subsequently have determined that our brain's ability to adapt and rewire itself was a true marvel at the time. So I thought, well, wait a minute. <laughs> if we're basing this whole argument on a misread of the latest brain research, what else is going on? So I, you know, being the research geek that I was at the time, dug into all of this supposed research support and was surprised to find there wasn't a shred of evidence that showed that a strength-based approach to development was any better than Focusing on weaknesses, for instance. I got real skeptical, Wanda. And it's true to this day, by the way. I mean, the Gallup organization is a big proponent of strengths. They have a huge database of over 18 million people who have taken their strengths assessment. Now, Gallup has published some of the best research out there on employee engagement and its relationship to business outcomes. So they know how to do good research. But there's not a single piece of peer-reviewed behavioral science research that shows working on strengths leads to better development, better performance, better outcomes than fixing weaknesses. Wow, Rob. Okay, so that's a very powerful statement. And for people who are not academics and publishers in the, uh, the uh, scientific literature, just to rewind that a tad bit, to say that there is no peer-reviewed studies means That's right. there's, there's no studies that other people in the field would say are valid, reliable, verifiable, substantiable, repeatable. There's just opinions, then, in other words. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. And, and, and I'll make one more statement on that. I, the self-published white papers are not research articles. They're more properly considered as marketing collaterals. Did I say that you were plain spoken, Rob? I think I recall saying that somewhere along the line. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. But, you know, let, let me be very clear. I mean, I want to be intellectually honest about this, Wanda. 
Um, there is good peer-reviewed research on the strengths approach. When I was the editor-in-chief of Consulting Psychology Journal for the last eight years, we published some of this stuff, and it was good work. And a lot of it does show that, yes, a focus on strengths can lead to improved performance, increased competency profiles, enhanced leadership effectiveness. But the few studies that have actually compared the strengths approach to other methods of development have not shown it to be more effective. Is it equally effective, though? Uh, in some cases, roughly, yeah. It's kind of the same thing you see in, the, in all the research on, on what works in psychotherapy, which is basically any approach is better than no approach, and they're all about roughly equal. Okay, okay. So it's not better, but it's not necessarily worse. What worries me about just the strength race approach is the following. I spend a lot of time helping women and men, for that matter, figure out how do they take that next step in their career, step up to higher level job, and really uh, succeed at that next level. And sometimes that step up to be the CEO, and sometimes it's step up somewhere in between the kind of upper mid ranks and the CEO. And in every case, it's almost as if there's something new they need to learn to do. Mm-hmm. That is going to make them more successful at this next level. And frequently the organization is looking to say, can you do it? Show me you can do it before I'm going to give you the opportunity. What I worry about with the strength-based approach is it can le- it feels it, it concerns me that it leads to complacency. I'm doing great. I keep doing what I'm doing. As opposed to, oh, my goodness, I have to do this differently now to get a different outcome. Oh, I couldn't agree any more with you. You know, you, you, just to simplify the challenges, as you go up the leadership pipeline and take on roles of increasing scope, scale, and responsibility, there, there are three really big shifts that happen. One, the job becomes much more strategic and less tactical in nature. Two, the importance of building a strong, capable team becomes paramount. No one person can know it all at the top. And third, you have to have some business acumen and a commercial understanding, much more than a functional technical understanding that that works well lower in an organization. So you think about those pivots you make at each turn up the career ladder, you do hit those jumps where, as Marshall Goldsmith wrote, what got you here won't get you there. I would say what got you here won't keep you here. But, you know, here's the thing. You get reinforced for doing those things earlier in your career, and it feels good, and you develop the skill, you build the muscle. It got you the promotion. Mm-hmm. It becomes really hard then to look at that other set of skills, and, and like we were talking about earlier, see that as some sort of desirable good thing you can identify with. So it creates this inner conflict around the demands of the role and how they change and this sense of self that you bring to the role. Yeah. Yeah, and now you're speaking my language, because as you know, Rob, I believe that as you are early in your career, you get rewarded for knowing the answer, being in control, managing the risk, instructing people beneath you on how to do this in a clear, concise, caring way, yes, please, but it's still an instructional process because you know 
what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. And that kind of expertise carries you for an incredibly long way with lots of rewards and lots of promotions and lots of really good things. And sometimes I'm going to tell you, Rob, I've seen it carry you almost all the way to the C-suite. But this other stuff that you're talking about, the being strategic and relying on that strong team underneath you to carry the day as opposed to you carrying the day and the commercial impact rather than the functional detail and everything, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about requires a fundamental shift in your mindset and it's you've been rewarded for one and suddenly that set of one is not what's going to help you succeed in what's coming. So a thing I've been calling expanding leadership, mostly because I'd like to kill the word generalist. I don't think we can do generalist anymore. I think it's a balance between I have some knowledge and I have some ability to span. So you're not I like that too. Span is a better word. Well, it's a personal pet peeve because I don't think it's true anymore that we could take a leader who has what we used to say fungible leadership skills and could lead anybody anywhere and drop them into an organization knowing nothing about the commercial impact, what drives the business, who the clients are, um, what it takes to really succeed in this business, where the opportunities are in the future, and expect them to lead and lead well and lead quickly enough. you got to have some knowledge, but you don't have to have all of it. That's right. You, You know, I think a really useful technique, if you will, or a tool for people, especially when you're being promoted into a bigger job. And, you know, the first observation I have on that is we tend to do a really poor job of onboarding people when they make these big leaps of scope and scale. We don't set the expectations really well and a whole host of things. But set that aside, let's face it, good news, you just got a huge promotion. You're going into a bigger job. Oh, and by the way, the game completely changes. Right. (laughs) A really helpful thing to do is to sit down with your new manager, pre-boarding, really, and have a conversation around three simple things. What sorts of things have you seen in me that make you think I'm going to be great in this job? What are my strengths I bring to the role? Also, what uh, concerns might you have about areas where I'm not tested? I haven't been in a job like this before. and like to understand the sorts of things I'm going to have to be able to do maybe for the first time in my career. And then the third thing gets back to those strengths overused. What has been key to my success so far that you and your position at this level and above can anticipate could actually get in the way and undermine my performance in this role? That conversation sets the seed for a a nice little ongoing conversation through the onboarding, the first 60 days and all that sort of stuff to, to have an ongoing dialogue and give you the chance to course correct because nobody gets it right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. And nor does I think any organization expect you to get it 100% right out of the gate because you did, it wasn't a stretch assignment. I mean, like, what was the fun in that? Yeah, that's so, right. That's right. I um I always tell this fun story. There was um, a guy who I was working with, and he, he was in financial services, and he had a mentor, sponsor, I should say. He was a couple of steps ahead of him, and for whatever reason, just thought that he had great capability. And so this sponsor said, I have this great opportunity for you. I'm going to put you in this brand new role. Now, behind the scenes, the guy is absolutely, totally in a state of panic, as in, oh, my mm-hmm. gosh, can I really do this job? I don't know. That's a big leap. 
I don't know much about this job. I'm probably no 20%, not 80%. I can't fail, blah, 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 blah. But also smart enough to say, well, if he believes me, I can do it. I'm certainly not telling him otherwise. So he accepts the job. Now, we might have some sideline commentary about how he thought he was good enough to do something he didn't know 80%. I can tell you privately, that was not what was in his head. But he accepts the job. And on taking the job, you know, it's already done and dusted. It's all signed off. And in a very gentle, very clever way, he turned to the sponsor and said, I'm just curious, what made you think I could do this? You know, what did you see in me that you think is going to make me successful here? Okay, a gentle way of asking for your first question. And the sponsor turned to him and said, oh, yeah, I know you don't know this, 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 or this, but here's the deal. I didn't need you to know it. What I need you to know is blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, his anxiety about how he does this job just goes from 100% down to 30%. So i got to deliver but at least I now know the expectations of me, what strengths I'm really playing on, and where it is I've been untested that I might now have to do something about. Mm. How much better way to begin the job than what we typically do? Oh, that's right. And, you know, going back to brain research and, and seeing how we're kind of wired to function, the bonus points for that manager would be to share some stories from his own career journey and the struggles he had finding his footing, or she, I shouldn't assume, and, and, and make that real and demystify it. Because, you know, the boogeyman is really big when it's roaming around in your head. But once you open your mouth and let it out and you have a conversation around these things that you're concerned about, worried about, it kind of defangs that boogeyman. It makes it real. It gives you concrete examples that you can learn from and role model as you climb that learning curve. Everyone has to on those big jumps. Right. right. And so we come back to, yes, I'm going to use my strengths, of course, but I don't want to get them overused, and I don't want to know more places where I haven't been tested. So just to reiterate, I loved your three questions about you've gotten a great promotion, and now please recognize the game changes. And so the three questions to ask someone who is backing you, supporting you, promoting you, being your manager. Number one, what are the things in your view make me great? What is it that you see in me that you think is going to make me great in this job, the stuff I need to keep doing? Number two, from your perspective, what are the concerns or areas that you think have not been tested yet that I might be doing for the first time that I need to be conscious of, right? And then number three, um, what are the areas where I have been successful and have used those strengths, but you can see that they may now get in my way or may now or might now begin to undermine my uh, success? I think anybody can ask uh, somebody who's supporting them those three questions and not feel too uh, afraid of hearing the answers. That's my so, experience. It's a straightforward conversation, very practical. Boy, it puts you in so much better place, though, to know what it is you need to do. And I'd also like to highlight that it is there playing to your strengths, but not ignoring the development areas. It's the balance of the two, again, as we've been talking about, that is so important. So, um, Rob, I want to just ask this question in terms of, you know, you see a lot of organizations with a lot of different approaches to development. What do you think makes for best-in-class development of leaders for the future? 
Well, it's the word you just noted that's been an undercurrent to our whole conversation, balance. Yes, absolutely, we need to work on those strengths, identify those strengths, help leaders to truly embrace and appreciate their strengths, and find ways to, to play to them. And we add that other side. A couple of specific things in best-in-class stuff. First off, when it comes to getting feedback, we need to open our lens a little bit. You know, we're obsessed with this idea of strengths and weaknesses. Well, I would just encourage us to expand that conception a little bit and distinguish strengths from shortcomings, those things you don't do so well, and strengths overused, those things that you can take too far and undermine your performance. Managers, executives resonate with that concept because they see it all the time, but it's not a part of our standard ways of providing feedback or assessing talent. The second thing in best in class is exactly the stasis and the static pattern you warned about a moment ago. Just playing to strengths is going to get me really deep and narrow. We've got to be mindful about asking for or providing to leaders we're hoping to grow an opportunity to get out of their comfort zone, to do new roles, to learn a broader perspective and develop a wider repertoire of skills. We know that successful executives aren't born that way and they're not made overnight. It used to be the rule of thumb. It takes about 20 years, maybe 25, to develop a successful executive because you've got to be seasoned. You have to have seen it, hopefully done it, at least enough to have an appreciation and respect for it. And if you go straight up the fast track, playing the same sorts of roles over and over, it's a Faustian bargain. Yes, you will get all of those wins along the way, but eventually you will find yourself perfectly developed and evolved for a world you can no longer cope with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that says a lot. I also think if you, it's a consistent with what you just said, the more out of the comfort zone experiences you have, the more you develop your agility, your ability to walk into a situation and say, ooh, this isn't what I quite expected. We have to reevaluate here. I have to pull on different muscles here, and there's another way to do it. As opposed to if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, I don't think you have the same level of agility that you would have when you've taken those out of the comfort zone moves. That's exactly right. Okay. So um, I get asked this question all the time. People want to know what's next in my career. And I don't think there's a script to tell you what's next in your career. There is up to a midpoint where it's sort of an obvious stop lockstep pattern on the expertise track. You know, I, I get good at this, and then I advance to that level, and I advance to that level, and I advance to that level. And I kind of reach the ceiling of what I'm going to do largely as an expert. And then what they need from there are broadening experiences that start exactly as you said, to widen their skills, broaden their exposure, and get them out of their comfort zone. Do you have a standard set of experiences you think um, senior executives, C-suite executives need to have had over the course of their career to be great? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a short checklist of these things you're calling broadening experiences. You know, the first is that, that, that you have done line and staff roles. You understand it from the corporate perspective. You understand it from the business unit perspective. Expat assignments are great. It's a global world of work. 
and some appreciation. You don't have to have been in country and one that you're responsible for, but having been out of your native land and having to learn how to adapt to those things gives you a template you can take to those new sorts of things. The other thing is being involved with the strategy-making process. See how it's done in my company. There's good role models and bad role models at that, by the way. But actually see what strategy is all about and the reality of how you make the sausage. Maybe the biggest one of all, though, is having had commercial experience, chiefly through managing a P&L yourself, but at least being in the business lines where it's where you have to make money and understanding all the unique pressures that go into that. Yeah. Okay, so a line role, which means I'm in the, the business unit and I see the pressures from the BU side or from the regional side, and a staff role, which means I'm in the corporate headquarters office and I understand how things are decided in the politics of that place, for example. Exactly. Some expat exposure, which I agree with you doesn't necessarily mean you have to go live in another country, but you have to have responsibility for another country in a way that you have to learn how that country works. And you're probably going to spend a good bit of time there, but you figure out how to make that country work in the context of the, your existing experience. The number three is getting involved in the strategy-making process in some way so you understand how that happens, what that works, how people are thinking, and so on. And the last one what I worry about the most is this notion of commercial experience, being in the core lines of business and understanding where the money is coming from, what it is that customers are buying, why they're buying it, what keeps the lights on in this place, I just think is hugely important. You got it. That last one is so critical. I can't tell you how many big successful organizations have really slumped because they get bogged down with an internal focus and take their eye off of market dynamics and most importantly, the customer. Well, and we lose a core part of the customer, even though we may be trying to change our focus. If we lose the core of that customer, we don't have the base to keep going. And I just think it helps to know where that's what that's about. What is really driving the machine? Well, I, one of the things that I get fascinated by on this uh, concept too, Rob, is that if you ask people, what is it that you do as a company that really drives your revenue stream? I don't think people have adequate answers to that. And that's what I think you mean by this sort of commercial sense, commercial experience. Understand what levers we can't really mess up. That's exactly right. And I agree. I see the same thing you're seeing. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are many savvy executives I've worked with who really understand how their business works. Sure. But there's also a lot of folks who don't have that knowledge, and especially as we're accelerating career paths, pushing people up roles that play to their strengths, denying them those broadening opportunities. I've seen more and more of, of an ignorance about how we make money and stay in business. Great. Well, Rob, as always, a fabulous conversation, and I think a really important one for people looking to develop their own careers, as well as individuals responsible for the development of other people's careers. My guest today, Rob Kaiser. You can find more about Rob's work at KaiserLeadershipSolutions.com. Rob, thanks for being a guest today. It was a pleasure, Wanda. Thanks for having me. Okay. And I think the watchword for the day is balance, 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 balance. So join us again for another episode next week in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.